My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. True or false, if you have a vulva, orgasms are the best in your 30s. How about this one? If you have a penis, every orgasm you experience will be basically the same. Or this, if you don't orgasm with ease or the best or right way, there's something wrong with you. If you have heard or believed these myths, yes, they are all false, you are not alone. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so thankful that you're listening. Today, we're going to explore common myths about orgasm, ways to experience your first one, how to have more fun in your sex life, and more with wonderful sex therapist, Vanessa Marin. If this episode turns you on, please head over to The Pleasure Chest. It's my favorite place to shop for sex toys, lube, and other sexual health products. They also offer free weekly workshops at their stores here in L.A., in New York, in Chicago, and attendees can receive a discount on purchases afterward. To shop right now, head to thepleasurechest.com or click their ad in my sidebar at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. And while you're on my site, don't forget to sign up for occasional Girl Boner Extras. I send updates about once a month, including episode extras, news about upcoming events, and more. You can also now find my Girl Boner book most anywhere books are sold and pre-order the companion book, Girl Boner Journal, on Amazon. Before we dive into all things orgasm, here is a very special invitation from our resident sex and relationship therapist, Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com. August, I'm excited that we are in day two of A League of Extraordinary Couples, a new show being presented by my friend and colleague, Amy Elizabeth Gordon. And there's still plenty of time for anyone listening to grab their complimentary ticket to learn from 20 of today's leading couples experts. Every day through February 21st, a new interview is being released, revealing a bird's eye view into the marriages of these experts and what helps them to address and dissolve conflicts in their marriages that let us not forget all relationships have. And in particular, what's their unique secret sauce that helps them to thrive even when the storms of life come their way? And especially mark your calendars to listen on February 20th, because that's when you're going to get a no-filter view of my own marriage when I present with my husband Dave of 18 years. And in our interview, we're going to discuss a skill we've developed that I call Name It to Tame It, which helps us create a literal pause when we find ourselves in these reactive patterns that have us, well, basically spiraling into the negativity versus leaning into each other, our strengths, our vision for what we know is possible, and how to get back on track. To hear more and to sign up, the link for free access is available at the bottom of today's show notes at augustmclaughlin.com or email me at my contact page at greatlifegreatsex.com and I'll personally send you the link. Can't wait for you to hear and learn from all these amazing experts. That sounds so fun. I signed up, and I hope you all will too. 
Now I'm so pleased to welcome Vanessa Marin to the show. Vanessa is a sex therapist with a bachelor's degree in human sexuality and a master's degree from the California Institute of Integral Studies. She's been featured on over 1,000 publications and media outlets like the New York Times, CNN, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, and Real Simple. I'm so grateful to be adding Girl Boner Radio to her list today. Welcome, Vanessa. How are you? I am doing great, thanks. I am so happy to be here. Would you share a little bit about your history as far as sexuality? Did you learn much about sex growing up? I learned practically nothing about sex growing up. Um, I remember my only sex education was in fifth or sixth grade. It took place in a little um, one of those portable uh, classrooms that no one ever went to on my school campus. The boys and girls were separate. And I remember the boys making so much fun of the girls that, you know, we had to go off and learn all this stuff by ourselves. Like it was so shameful. And really the only thing I remember learning from that was that I needed to wear deodorant. You know, my body was changing and I was starting to smell and, you know, that we all needed to wear deodorant. That (laughs) is really, really funny. What did you learn in sex ed? About smelly armpits. Pretty much. And I was then petrified afterwards. (laughs) Like, how bad do I smell? Is the deodorant actually going to cover it all up? So that was really it. That was all I remember learning. Um, I actually remember I had a bet with my best friend. Um, And we bet how many holes does a woman have down there? And I was completely convinced, even after this sex education, you know, workshop, that there were only two. And had to, like, go home to my mom and ask her. I thought that you peed and had sex and, you know, your period out of all the same hole. It was a very busy hole. Um, and had to go home to my mom and learn that I had lost a dollar to my best friend. So that's how bad it was. Yeah. How did your mom reply? Do you remember? She was very embarrassed about it. My parents were, um, both of my parents were, were really wonderful and always were encouraging me to, you know, talk about stuff with them. Um, but sex was definitely, they never explicitly said, don't ask us about sex or sex is bad. But I just knew, you know, even from a young age, like this is not something that I'm supposed to ask. So I normally would not have asked my mom, how many holes does a woman have down there? But I was really convinced that that dollar was mine. So that was how <laughs> I worked up the, uh, the courage to ask her. It's also really cool that you felt you could ask her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my... Um, my family history is interesting. My mom was raised very, very intensely religious. Um, she went to Catholic school. Her family is, you know, one of the just strictest Catholic families that I've ever met. Um, and so she grew up and realized that she didn't want to instill those same sort of beliefs in her children. So she worked really hard to not, you know, give us negative messages about sex, but she just couldn't take that second step into teaching the positive messages about it. So It's hard to do when you didn't learn much or if you only learned negative information, for Absolutely. sure. At what point did you realize you wanted to pursue a career in sexuality? It really went back to one of the, you know, my parents' one attempt at having the talk with me. Um, We were in our, like, minivan driving home from Grandma's house, and I think my mom was driving. My dad was in the passenger seat, and I look in the rearview mirror, and I can see my mom looking at me in the mirror, and she said, you know, if you have any questions about, you know, sex, you can ask us. 
And again, it was just one of those moments where you're asking me to, but I know that in reality what you're saying is, please do not ask me anything. We don't want to get the questions. We don't want to have to answer them. So I have such this vivid memory of being really conflicted in that moment and feeling like, oh my God, I have so many questions. I'm so curious. There are so many things I've heard. And I even had this weird feeling of like, you know, why can't I ask these questions? Because I knew I'm not supposed to. They don't want me to. And I just remember feeling that, like, why can't I ask? I really wish that I could. Why does this have to be so hard? Especially since my parents are so open about talking about everything else. You know, why is this so hard? So really my entire career, like, comes back to that moment and comes back to wanting to help people realize, like, it doesn't have to be this hard. We can have those conversations. That's so beautiful, and I commend you so much for doing it. You have such a positive, upbeat energy to all the content you share online. Thank you so much. Which I think is such an important thing, and I think it's so wonderful we have so much access. Unfortunately, the Internet also provides a place to have myths run rampant and people learn all kinds of oh, negative yeah. things. What's one orgasm myth that just really gets to you? The one that I hate the most is, there are a lot of variations of it, but the basic idea is that orgasm is this passive process. So you see so many articles saying, you know, all you have to do is just relax. Stop thinking about it. You know, you're stressing yourself out about it. Um, even like have a glass of wine, you know, just really calm yourself down. Um, like that's all that there is to do is just let go and let it happen to you. So I think that's the one that riles me up the most and I think ends up being the most damaging. And how do you reply to that? Because that completely, I know for me, I have always had to be somewhat proactive. I mean, it kind of takes over. Mm -hmm. But if I just, and I've heard people say they just laid there waiting for it to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And that can be a really frustrating thing. Or if you feel like you have to be proactive and you think that therefore then there's something wrong. Because, you know, I remember thinking that. Like, well, do some people just lay there and there it is? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So how exactly. do you reply when you, when you hear that or somebody says to you, Okay, so it's not happening. I'm just sitting there, laying there. I'm expecting it to happen. My partner, you know, we're having intercourse. Why is it not happening? Yeah, I really like to make it clear that orgasm is an active process. It's not a passive one. It's not something that happens to us. It's something that we make happen. And I think there's such an interesting difference in how we look at male and female orgasm. Men don't have, you know, men don't just lie there waiting for it to happen to them. Like they move in the ways that they like, you know, at the angles they like, they get into the positions that they like. And they create that orgasm for themselves. But we really shame women for wanting to do the exact same thing. That's so interesting that our conditioning has set us up for that, too, because there's so many ways where women are taught to not be assertive and to not go for it. Absolutely. And that it also affects pleasure is is huge. And then the stress that can come from feeling like you, quote, can't experience mm -hmm. orgasm only makes things more challenging, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, these are definitely dynamics that show up inside and outside of the bedroom. So I talk a lot about the difference between selfless sex and selfish sex. Um, I think most of us women, we are, you know, socialized and programmed to be selfless inside of the bedroom and out. That we, you know, we focus more on our partner's experiences, that we're being caregivers and really sensitive and attuned to them. 
And so, you know, I really like to talk about this idea of having selfish sex, and it's a healthy kind of selfish. I think it's interesting just to see even the reaction that most of us have to that word selfish. We're like, oh, I'm not supposed to, you know, that's a bad word. Um, But the idea of, you know, that you can care about your own experience, too, and that you can want things, too. Again, it's inside and outside of the bedroom. Completely. And so often, I think most partners really care about a partner's pleasure. Mm -hmm. So... If you are being selfish in that way, you're focusing on your own pleasure, it really will benefit the whole relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, most of us, we, we want to have like an even exchange. You know, we want to know that our partners are feeling good, that we're feeling good, that we're both caring about each other's experience. But it's just there's such a, a big gap in, you know, for women right now that I think we really need to approach sex in a totally different way than we've been taught to. One myth that really gets to me is the idea that women peak sexually in their 30s, which even that yeah. term is interesting because what does that mean, right? Does that mean our sexuality shrivels up after that or does mm-hmm. it mean we don't have orgasms later or we're just horniest? Like it brings up all these like definitions and and what does it mean? But what's interesting is I wrote an article about it. It's in my book too, but the whole idea that 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 is the case came from a study that was conducted in 1953. Oh, boy. So when people take (laughs) a finding and it turns into a headline Mm -hmm. and people pass that on, and this was self-reported, so women in the 50s being expected to talk about how orgasmic they are. (laughs) But fortunately, a more recent study in JAMA Internal Medicine analyzed sex lives of over 600 women ages 40 to 65 for eight years and found that women who have positive attitudes about sex are three times more likely to stay pleasurably sexually active and experience more pleasure, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, definitely. I have no idea where that myth came from. It's, you know, it's just such a horrible one. So it's interesting to hear about this study now from the 50s. So that's great. Yeah. And I also think that one reason that some people find that easy to believe is because I think there's also an idea that guys peak in like their teens and 20s. Yeah. Like they're really horny then. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then women are suddenly horny in the 30s when they want to like make babies. Yeah. Which if you are someone who does not want to have children, that could be confusing, right? You're Mm -hmm. like, you know, what does that say for me? But then also I think some people might find more sexual desire, more freedom in their 30s, maybe because they worked past some insecurities. Because I feel like in the 20s, I don't know about you, but I wasn't feeling the most confident about my body. (laughs) Oh, I'm with you. Yeah, the 20s were rough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it just creates this really negative environment where I have so many women who ask me, is it too late for me? Am I not going to be able to learn how to orgasm now? And that just kills me because, you know, we are capable of so much pleasure throughout our entire lives. Yes, it's it's never too late, right? It's never, ever, ever too late. Yeah. What about this myth? What do you tell people when they think that every orgasm has to be earth shattering? Oh, yeah. That's another big one. A huge one. Yeah. You know, orgasms are like snowflakes. No two are alike. Uh, They can be, you know, just wildly, wildly different experiences. And I think that's part of what makes it fun is that you, you know, can have such different ones at at different times. And it's such an experience that you can really explore. It's not just you've had one and now you know what it's like. And then it's, you know, it's all boring and, uh, and predictable from there. But yeah, most people expect that they should always be 
earth shattering. You're having to pull yourself off the ceiling. You know, your head has exploded. All this crazy stuff has happened. And I think that myth is actually most harmful for women who have never had an orgasm because they're expecting their very first one to be wildly, you know, intense and pleasurable. And so I usually tell women, when you're first learning how to orgasm, your first ones are not going to feel great. Like they're maybe going to feel a little bit more pleasurable than what you would normally feel. Um, sometimes hardly anything. So I actually work with a lot of women who have already had orgasms, but it's just that they're expecting that crazy over-the-top thing that they don't realize it. And then yeah. once I tell them, they're like, oh my God, I actually have been orgasming. Because if you look at TV for depiction, since we don't oh, have, yeah. no one teaches in sex ed, the variants of orgasm. Can you imagine? <laughs> some of your orgasms will be really strong and some will be, I mean, we don't learn that. So if you're watching porn and movies and TV and you're seeing sex scenes that are very entertaining to see because if a really whispery light orgasm happened on TV, you wouldn't really <laughs> see it. You yeah, know what I mean? Because exactly. we're looking at expressions. It would actually be really cool. Hey, TV writers, do a scene yes, where <laughs> someone has a really mild, I don't, mild's not the right word, but a gentle, whispery orgasm and loves yeah. it, you know, just yeah. and talks about it or something because, yeah, we don't have a lot of information on that unless you are working with someone like you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all the orgasms that you see on TV and in the movies always look exactly the same. And so, you know, it makes sense that that's the expectation that women have. But again, it's really important to recognize that it's such a different experience. And there's a, a joy and a beauty and a pleasure uh, in all of those experiences of it. Absolutely. It's so true. Very well said. This myth also I think it's a thought-provoking one. It brings up a lot of questions. There's something wrong with you if you need a toy to experience orgasm. Oh, that's a huge one. Yeah, and that one is really, really sad as well. Um, I see so many variations of that and so many women who feel guilty for using toys, for liking toys. And I just think, you know, we're living in an era of incredible innovation. There are some amazing toys out there. And this should be something that we all feel excited about exploring. <laughs> there are great toys out there that can do things that hands and mouths cannot do. Um, and especially, you know, I have a lot of clients who have um, injuries or some sort of chronic illness that, you know, toys are the only way that they can reach orgasm. Um, so I think it's that the fact that we're feel bad about this is such a shame. Yeah, it really is. And the idea that they somehow would replace intimacy with a person, I think some people are worried about that. And it's just, it's so different. It's an accessory. It's something yeah. that can benefit <laughs> a partner too, to, to share together. Or maybe it helps you experience more orgasms on your own. That too benefits a relationship. Absolutely. It, yeah, it's a totally different experience to use a toy than to be with a living, breathing, complex human being. So a toy is never going to replace a partner ever. Um, and it can be, I think, yeah, a lot of people have this idea that toys pull you apart, but it can actually be a very bonding experience to use a toy in the bedroom together. Yeah, I completely agree. I heard from somebody recently who is feeling very self-conscious about feeling like she needs lube. Oh, God, yes. And mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting because her partner is really struggling with that, too. Feels like if we need lube and we're not 60, then there's something wrong with us. And to me, that you know made my heart ache a bit because, first of all, there's nothing wrong with anybody of any age for, mm -hmm. for using lube if it makes it a more sexy, fun experience. But also, I feel like lube has been lo losing that reputation for being 
a sexual aid for to address a specific problem per se. So many people use lube in their 20s to make sex toys more fun to play with or partner sex. Do you hear people talking about lube? Because I feel like lube can really make orgasms a lot more feasible and fun. I love lube. I'm a huge lube evangelist. And so whenever I hear people saying, you know, oh, I feel bad. I shouldn't have to use this. I just think, you know what, especially we as women, we judge our bodies for so many things already. Are we really going to let our level of vaginal wetness be another thing that we judge ourselves for? Like, no, it's crazy. Um, And it's also really important to recognize that your level of wetness is not related to how turned on you are. Thank you for saying that. I almost (laughs) just squealed. But carry on. Yeah. I mean, you can be very, very wet and not at all aroused. You can be wildly turned on and not at all wet. It's the same thing with men. Men can have erections when they're not wanting to be sexual at the worst possible times, you know, and they can be desperate to have sex and really struggling with having an erection. So the behavior of our genitals just does not line up with the desires that are happening in our brain. Completely. I feel like boners are really a mind-body yeah. brain thing more than anything, yeah. for sure. And I think what's helped lube, too, is that there are such better lubes out there now. So even just a few years ago, all you could really get were KY jelly or, you know, just the stuff that you get um, at a drugstore. And a lot of those lubes, I don't know if I should not say the name, but, you know, a lot of those lubes um, are just really sticky and kind of goopy and they just don't feel great. So they create this experience that sort of makes you feel a little embarrassed to be using it. And now, though, there are so many amazing high quality lubes that are very, very slick against the skin. They're silky smooth. They feel great. So I think everyone should be using lube, regardless of what your natural you know, vaginal lubrication situation is in that particular moment. I think it definitely makes everything feel so much more pleasurable. It decreases any sort of discomfort or sexual pain, and it can make it a lot easier to orgasm and make the orgasms themselves feel more pleasurable. So there's literally no reason to not use it. What do you think about tips for somebody who has never experienced orgasm, regardless of age? Are there some really practical ways to pave the way? I am a firm believer that you need to start with learning how to orgasm on your own. So I think as part of this whole orgasm is a passive process myth, a lot of women think, you know, it's something that my partner does to me, that happens to me when I'm with a partner. And I really think that it's just so important for us women to take ownership of our orgasms and learn how to get ourselves off first. And not only that, I think it's an incredibly empowering experience to learn your body and to figure out what makes it tick and respond and what you like. It's, you know, even if orgasming with a partner was much easier than orgasming on your own, you should still want to have that experience of orgasming on your own because it's so empowering. And I love setting that as a goal. I know I've heard the message, which I think has value too, to not only focus on the orgasm, right? To not to enjoy yeah. the whole process. That's super important. But for me, I want orgasm to be a goal usually, you know, <laughs> when I'm engaging. And I think that that's a very valuable to give yourself permission to say, I want to play with myself because I want to learn to orgasm. I think that's a really valid aim. 
Yeah, there's yeah, there's so much to learn from masturbation. I mean, orgasm is definitely the key goal that most people are going for when they're doing that. But masturbation is an amazing form of self-care. You know, it's something that we can do to just really change the, our relationship with our bodies, to decrease stress and anxiety, to, um, you know, just have moments of connection and relaxation. There's so many great benefits that you can get from it. And from there, the next step might be for somebody who has a partner, they want to then help them learn how to help bring them to orgasm. Mm-hmm. What are the steps there? Does it require a conversation? Definitely, it does require a conversation. I think so many of us are afraid to communicate in the bedroom. We have this, you know, another myth that if you have to talk during sex, that something's wrong. You know, we kind of expect that sex should just be natural. I'm doing air quotes right now. (laughs) Um, That, you know, just should flow without any sort of effort required. And I think that's so wrong and such a harmful myth. Um, Communication is essential and can be incredibly sexy and bonding and connecting too. And when should you have that conversation? I think if you've never had an orgasm on your own or with a partner, I think it can be really useful to have that conversation at the beginning of a relationship. So again, I know a lot of people feel self-conscious about this and really nervous, but I think that if you can work up that courage to say, hey, you know, by the way, I have, you know, I'm still learning how to orgasm or, you know, orgasming with a partner. It takes me a little bit of time just to get used to someone new. So I just want you to know what the expectations are. Uh, You know, let's take it off the table for a little bit. I think that can just really decrease your anxiety and um, help you feel more relaxed and more connected with your partner. As you said that, too, it just felt very soothing. You know, it just normalizes it. And says, oh, it's just, you know, we talk so much about other things that we haven't tried or want mm-hmm. to start experiencing. We talk about this new restaurant we want to try. Yeah. <laughs> but we can't go, oh, um, so, you know. But when you have some comfort around it, yeah, it's so much easier to say that. Absolutely. Yeah, or just think... show them this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good one, too. Yeah, a lot of women, they approach those kinds of conversations as if they're confessing that they've murdered someone or kidnapped someone. And so I always say, you know, you're not making a confession to your partner. You've done nothing wrong. So paying attention to your tone and delivery is really important. So if this is something that feels nerve-wracking for you, practice it in front of a mirror a few times until you feel your tone start to soften. And it's really just that, hey, just want to give you a heads up. Usually it takes me a while to orgasm with someone new. So, you know, let's not worry for, about it for a little while. And going back to masturbation, so if you're someone who's not really masturbated before and you want to practice and get to know your body and hopefully experience orgasm too, where would you suggest starting? I know all of our bodies are so different, but would you recommend starting with your hand externally? Would you recommend just seeing where your hand goes? Do you recommend a toy? I would recommend starting with your hand externally. Um, For most women, you know, um, external stimulation is what feels best, uh, stimulating the clitoris. Female orgasm is all about the clitoris. So I would start there and just kind of explore, see what that feels like for you. You can definitely try exploring internally as well to see if you can get the internal portions of the clitoris through the vaginal wall. And you can definitely try using a toy as well. But I think there's something really interesting about exploring using your hand at first. And do you recommend setting aside time for masturbation or just sort of just going with the desire when it crops up? 
I think you could do both. So definitely if you feel the desire for it, go with it. <laughs> Follow that. But I think there's also something very important about trying to schedule time for masturbation and like carve that out for ourselves. So in, a, in that way, it's, it really is like self-care. You know, sometimes you don't always feel like doing those things that you know are really good for you. Masturbation can be the same sort of thing. So if you take that time, you give yourself a good chunk of time so you're not feeling like, oh, I have one minute. I need to just see if I can figure this out. You know, that's that's not going to work. Um, if you can give yourself more time and create an experience around it, too. So maybe it's like putting on some of your favorite music that makes you feel really sexy and relaxed. Maybe it's lighting your favorite candles or turning down the lights a little bit. Maybe it's putting on an outfit or some lingerie that you really feel sexy in. So it's it's this whole experience rather than this just, I've got to figure this out as soon as possible. Yeah, because it should feel fun, right? It it's, should. <laughs> you know, it, it can be quote, work, but work is can also be very fun. You know, working on your relationship, you're working on your health. But just as exercise is much better if it's actually fun for you. Exactly. You want to also, especially because so much of the point is pleasure. Obviously, there are so many other benefits, but you want to have fun. What are some of the ways, I know that's a, a specialty of yours, is helping people create that sense of of playfulness, especially I think if you have struggled with orgasm or vaginal dryness or whatever it is, and you've felt like, oh my gosh, there's all these things and I'm not doing it right, it can start to feel burdensome. Absolutely. This is one of the main concerns that I hear about from people, really regardless of what their particular concern is. Uh, you know, sex is just such a sensitive issue for us that it's so easy for most of us to go to this place of problem solving around it, where we get very serious, we feel very embarrassed about it. it you know, we just get fixated on there's a problem and I need to fix it. And instead, I think it's so much more useful and so much more fun if we can bring some lightness back to it and recognize that we can explore goals and make changes in our sex life, but in a way that feels fun and playful and exploratory. So, you know, there's no there's no such thing as doing sex the right way. You know, there, you, nobody's grading you here. Like, you're not going to get a report card. You're not getting gold stars. Um, so it's it's really letting yourself recognize that this is about exploration and and not putting that pressure on yourself to get it right immediately. So there are, I know, so many fun ways to to start cultivating that that playfulness. Toys are one of my favorite things to do is to, like, recommend that you try a new toy or it could be a new position or role playing. What kinds of practical kind of step by steps? What are some of the things people could consider to create what you just described so well? Yeah, all of those things are great ideas, you know, different toys and accessories, trying different positions. The interesting thing with, um, you know, most of us have heard this advice to spice things up in the bedroom, you know, try new things. And then I think what happens is we get in the moment during sex and we just kind of freeze and we can't think of anything to actually do. So I think a great way that you can be playful about it is start compiling a list. 
So again, most of us have heard this advice about spicing it up and can actually, if you you know sit down and write out a list, you can come up with different things that you're cur- curious about trying. I would like to try having sex outside of the bedroom. I would like to try having sex where maybe there's a possibility that someone could see me. I would like to try this position. I've read about this particular toy. I want to try playing with lube. You know, we can have all these ideas. So write them down somewhere. And if you're in a relationship, you can create some sort of like a shared Google document where you can both be adding to it and then that way you actually have ideas in a central location that you can refer back to so you can do fun stuff with that too you could write everything out um, print it out and like cut the little strips of paper up put it in a little jar by your bedside table and draw one you know and whatever you pick that you know in in that moment or that day you're going to do that one or you and your partner could put that list in an order of here's what we're most interested in trying you know ordered all the way down to these are the ones that are not quite as exciting But, you know, just the idea of creating some sort of list of stuff that you can actually start working through. That's such a great idea and also would build anticipation, which is so Mm -hmm. sexy. Yeah. So you could even schedule out different dates with that. Um, So that way you have a whole calendar of things to look forward to. Yeah. What a great idea. That's beautiful. So I know you have a lot of great offerings. You teach courses. What are some of the things that people can do to work with you? Yeah, I work with clients in a number of different ways. I do um, have a lot of online courses that I've made about some of the most popular topics that people ask me about. So I have courses about female orgasm, about couples with mismatched sex drives, um, increasing your libido, overcoming performance anxiety. I also work with people one-on-one. So I do coaching over phone, email, or video chat. Um, So you can definitely reach out if you're interested in that and uh, check out all the different options. Awesome. Could you just share one last tip for somebody who is brand new to their sexual discovery journey? What's something that's not said enough? Ooh, that's a good question. For orgasm in particular or any sort of sexual exploration? Whatever comes to you. Follow your pleasure. I think that so often we forget, we get so fixated on orgasm that we just think of that goal, that end goal that we want to hit, and we forget that pleasure is the pathway to orgasm. If we want to experience orgasm, we have to be feeling pleasure all the way of, you know, up to that. And not only that, but that pleasure that we're feeling through that whole path up to orgasm can be just as satisfying and enlivening and exciting as the orgasm itself. So don't forget about the pleasure. Follow that pleasure. It's just as important as everything else. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining me and for the super important work you're doing. Thank you so much. It was such a blast. Speaking of orgasms, I recently had the chance to interview Dr. Nicole Prowsey, researcher and founder of the sexual biotechnology firm Liberos by Skype. We talked about her studies involving arousal, orgasm, and sex toys, and cisgender women here in the U.S. If you've seen Showtime series Masters of Sex or are familiar with the studies that William Masters and Virginia Johnson conducted back in the 50s, you might imagine people getting busy while scientists watch. But as Dr. Prowse explained, things have really changed since then. Most of the studies we do involve uh, lab setups that are very typical of psychophysiologists. So psychophysiologists are people that study a combination of psychology and physiology. 
So we want to understand what you're experiencing when you report something, but then we also want to verify and see how your body's responding and how that may match up with what you're feeling or fail to match up, uh, as these are often parts of different pathologies people have. So our studies typically involve an internal windowless room, um, and we are on the outside with a door closed and cables just running you know, through the wall that are recording responses. So as an experimenter, while people are engaged in whatever the protocol is for that particular study, um, we are usually very anxious on the other side of the wall, hoping that our biosignals are clear, that nothing falls off of you, <laughs> that uh, makes sense. You know, there's no uh, outage of a cable or something in the process. So for us, it's not at all voyeuristic in the sense that, you know, it's my most uh, anxious time in a study is when someone's actually doing something sexual because I'm very worried about the science and kind of the clarity of the signal. With the one major exception is usually psychophysiologists uh, have a camera in the room. So in the schizophrenia lab, normally we monitor people with a video camera because if they're not engaging in the task or they're starting to fall asleep, we need to know that so that we can wake them back up or you know take whatever corrective action. But we can't do that in sexuality studies because people typically don't have all the clothing on and they're not willing to do a study where there's going to be a camera in the room, understandably. So we're flying a bit blind, and it uh, just makes it that much more kind of nerve-wracking as a scientist where, you know, you're really hoping that all the stuff is where it's supposed to be and staying on where it's supposed to be. And we have to do a lot more sleuthing after the fact to kind of understand what happened in the lab. Dr. Prousey has used a variety of measuring tools and questionnaires to analyze anal contractions, skin response, brain activity, and emotional states of women during arousal and orgasm. And like many studies, hers has revealed some unexpected results. Uh, one, we always kind of thought historically that people start to get aroused and they get more and more and more aroused until blammo, they have an orgasm when they get excited enough, and that's how it works. <laughs> However, that is. And what we're finding is there really seems to be a separable phase. That is, people do start to get aroused, and there's effort that they're effortfully doing that, really trying to get aroused initially. But then that there's a shift that we can see both in the brain and in the periphery, that is in the uh, skin response you mentioned, where people actually reduce their inhibition and kind of let go, you could say. And this is fascinating because we didn't know that that happened, and it suggests that we might need to really modify some of our basic understandings of what sexual response looks like, including the master's uh, model of sexual response. I loved hearing this because it really affirms what so many of us experience and have talked about, the way sex and orgasm sort of take over. For more on that, check out my interview with Dr. Nan Wise from November 2017. Her latest research has provided a related takeaway, that you don't have to quiet down your busy thoughts in order to experience sexual pleasure and orgasm. Dr. Prousey partnered with Love Honey recently. She said the company was interested in seeing the difference in devices they're developing, in particular, the new Happy Rabbit. And I just assumed, you know, this was vibrators are efficient. <laughs> they're good at what they do. Uh, they can crank out the power for as long as you want or need it. And so I assumed that the difference in uh, reaching orgasm from your hand versus from a vibrator would be that the vibrator was faster period. <laughs> That's just uh, what they're good at. And we actually were finding the opposite. That is, people tended to take a lot longer 
um, with the vibrator and then also had a little bit of a longer orgasm that they reported experiencing when they were using the vibrator. So that's never been looked at before, you know, despite decades now of sex tech. Um, and I love the idea of moving forward, thinking about, you know, not just uh, developing new toys, but what can this toy really do that's different and how can we verify that? So I was very happy to partner with them and look at what those differences might be and what's reasonable to expect. That is really interesting. I, I am surprised too that that the vibrator would take longer, you know, depending on the person, I guess, but that's, you know, the reputation they have, especially the really intense ones. Mm-hmm. I do, I could see, well, yeah, I feel like also if you take more time to get aroused, that the orgasm would be stronger. Right. So we done exactly the part of what we were doing with this is these folks were handed the vibrator and, you know, I orient them to it. And so they have a chance to make sure they understand how the buttons work, you know, Uh, just those basic kinds of things, but it's a new toy to them. And so I said, on one hand, isn't that the purpose of getting a new toy (laughs) is to uh, kind of play around and understand your body in a different way, maybe, and explore something, kind of broaden your sexual, sexual repertoire. So, you know, in hindsight, of course, this makes better sense. And we do find uh, people report using the vibrator on a variety of different body parts. Um, So they're not just using it on their clitoris. Uh, Like they're not trying to be as efficient as possible. They're playing, you know, like they're enjoying it. Mm. Exactly what I think we probably want them to do with the vibrator. So maybe, you know, it could be if you used it for, you know, a month that the nature of the use changes. Maybe that's only the case for new toys, but I thought, you know, in hindsight, that made so much better sense. Uh, and so I love that we look, were able to look at it in a systematic way of like, what does happen when you introduce a new item uh, into your kind of sexual availability? How do we understand something that's novel to us? Pretty interesting, right? I often think of novelty as something that excites us and sort of speeds things up and It can, but in this way, it's almost more zen and mindful. That can be so important for everything from stronger sexual pleasure and intimacy to relieving stress and anxiety. I was curious what Dr. Prowsey felt were important takeaways from her studies for us all to hear and perhaps apply at home, whether we want to experience more pleasure or chip away at sexual shame. On the latter, the less shame piece, I think the contractions are really helpful in that respect because... Uh, I think a lot of the pressures that women encounter are around this hyperfunctional uh, myth. That is, you know, if you're reading, a, well, online these days, <laughs> I say magazine, but, you know, you're like, how can I, you know, get this even higher experience or how can I have an orgasm faster or an orgasm that's more powerful? And the fact is, you know, orgasms are reflexes and you might experience them as being more or less strong. You know, certainly they uh, vary in how we feel them, but the actual physiology uh, we can see now, we have good documentation because these women came in twice each, you know, your orgasm is what it is. Uh, That is, seems to be the similar number of contractions, regardless of how you got there. Uh, So you can take the pressure off a little bit. I think of, you know, am I responding as much as I possibly could? And can I read something that's going to help me become hyper-functional, you know, like uh, doing even more than just enjoying myself with consensual sex. And I uh, would love to see that kind of pressure reduced on these 
some of these hyper-functional stories. Um, and another piece could be, you know, I think we often get conflicting advice if you say, okay, how do you like warm things up in the bedroom? And you'll see, okay, you know, get your candles out, take a bubble bath, you know, <laughs> like do all these relaxation. But then on the other hand, some advice will say, go for a run, um, <laughs> get your walk around the house. And they can't both be true, right? <laughs> like you can't, you can't <laughs> run around to the bathtub. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I've always thought that was a bit funny that they contrast and these data could be part of why that is, it depends what you're worried about. So like, if you have trouble getting your engine started, kind of that earlier phase of arousal, then it might make sense for you to be more active and doing something to get your heart rate up and kind of engaged um, so that you can make the effort that's necessary to get like aroused enough, whatever that is, we're still working on that. Um, but then if you're more concerned about uh, kind of being able to relax so that you can experience an orgasm, well, that may be more about letting your mind go, um, kind of, you know, mindfulness or meditative type of approaches. So you don't go run around. You need to relax. You know? <laughs> kind of get your mind in a better spot. So uh, to me, thinking that there might be two separate phases leading up to orgasm helps reconcile some of those conflicting uh, pieces of advice I think we often see. And so maybe you can tailor it a bit better to think about where is it exactly that I'm struggling and targeting that thing to help you know, uh, assist with what the specific thing that you're struggling with rather than just taking kind of broad generic advice. Keeping things in perspective is so important, especially in our headline-focused culture. You know what's also important? Sexual science. Yet the U.S. hasn't been historically known for embracing it. Given lingering stigmas around sex, I asked Dr. Prowsey if she meets resistance as she works to get studies funded and approved. Yes. <laughs> so we have um, encountered a number of barriers. And when I was a student at Kinsey, a lot of these things were still very active. You know, we had a grant that was funding some of the work at Kinsey brought up before Congress for defunding uh, only for the reason that it had sexual content. There was nothing wrong with the grant. The Congress just didn't like it. And uh, I thought as a student that, uh, you know, things were changing. And once, you know, as long as you're doing good work, it will get through and the cream rises to the top. And uh, that was wrong. <laughs> We've found this work blocked in so many different ways. Um, we've had a number of different groups. You know, we have to be cautious of security here. Um, you know, I don't disclose the location of my uh, lab lightly, and we provide false addresses because we have issues with people who are uh, actively wanting to shut the lab down and trying to find ways to do that. But then the IRBs as well um, have sometimes created problems. So, like, we sent an identical protocol to two different university IRBs to study orgasm. One of them passed it with no changes, or almost no changes, I should say. Uh, the other one actually rejected the entire study, which is really unusual at a university. And, uh, you know, they didn't cite any privacy or safety concern. They just wanted us to take the orgasm part out, and we refused to do it. So they rejected the entire study. So uh, I wish I could say that things were changing, uh, but I have not seen yet where they are in the U.S. And for that reason, a lot of my colleagues have moved to Canada. Uh, which is much more receptive and has funding that is actually allotted for female health, including sexual health, which is just wild. Like that would never happen in the U.S. <laughs> so mm -hmm. if it wasn't so damn cold up there, I might not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you completely. Does that resistance 
I'm sure it's very frustrating. Does it also motivate you? It's totally motivating because if I can figure out a way to get it through, uh, then we can be the first to test it. And that was absolutely the case with like the partnered simulation protocol we did. You know, we received a nonprofit grant to do that work and a university wouldn't accept the money. <laughs> and so I said, well, uh, I'll find a different way. And we did. And so now we have the first, you know, data in 125 couples, uh, 250 people that where we can actually look at some of these proposed health benefits. And it's such a unique, rich data set that uh, these things are worth fighting for. So I, I don't like being told no, but usually if you're told no, uh, that's where you should run, uh, run towards it, do whatever that work is they want to stop. That's exactly the work you should be doing. Okay, that completely spoke to me on a personal level. To learn more about Dr. Prowsey's work, visit liberoscenter.com, where you can sign up for her newsletter, find out about upcoming studies they're recruiting for, and more. You can also follow along on Twitter at Nicole R. Prowsey. That's P-R-A-U-S-E. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you haven't, and leave us a rating and simple review. Those both really help us keep things going here. You can also follow along on Spotify or iHeartRadio or my site, augustmclaughlin.com. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.